Hey, Mike. Hey, Michelle. How's it I'm going? ready as I'll never be. <laughs> That's okay. Does this sound okay? Yeah, it sounds great, actually. You sound good, too. Okay, good. Hopefully, there'll be less crickets and dog howling in this one. But no promises. Did you listen to the Hounds of Hell from last episode? I listened to a little bit. Yeah, that was hard to hear. As much as you could take. As much as I could take. Yeah. All right, Michelle, this is Fargo on West Coast Project, episode 405, The Birthplace of Civilization. Yep. Do you have any catching up to do, Michelle? Yeah, first a little bit of housekeeping, because after watching the scene where the Iceman rode from the tub two gazillion times, I think you might be right in that he didn't levitate. It was a cool shot. It looked all spooky and everything, but no levitation, likely. Yeah, they made it look mysterious, but he was just standing up, I think. Yeah, and I really argued that. And even when we went back and watched it, and I watched it, I still saw it again. So, but I don't I don't think he did levitate. Okay, so I want to do talk about, I want to do, I do want to talk about that <laughs> scene. I think the ghost, I think the ghost guy, if you think about it, I think he's, I think he's, um, I don't think he's evil, but I think he is death. I think he's like an agent of death. And I think what he does is he collects souls when people die. They he, they go through some sort of check-in process to heaven or hell, whatever that may be. And he is kind of the checker-inner. Checker-inner? Okay. <laughs> so think about it because, like, Sawani was, like, pretty sick. She was choking or sick or sick to her stomach or whatever, poisoned by the Ipecac or whatever she was. And then... Her friend woke her up, shook her awake, and as soon as she got shaken awake, and she and her friend, what's her friend's name? Her girlfriend? Swanee and uh, Zelmer. Zelmer. Zelmer shook her awake and kind of brought her back away from the brink of death. Right. Then the guy just walked past, like, oh well, got to wait later for this Swanee to be ingratiated and you know and, and captured into heaven or hell. And then, you know, Zelmer was laughing, so we kind of got the hint that everything was going to be okay with Sawani. Right. So, and then also the guy who, he's in the mortuary basement, he's, that's, I, I made a joke about it with you this week, it's kind of his headquarters, right? And a mortuary is a perfect place to pick up souls and, you know, catalog them in there on their way to heaven or hell. So he's... Oh. And, and and because he's there all the time, that's why Ethelreda wasn't so shocked to see him. So he's Grim Reaper-ish. Is that what we're saying? Uh, maybe a kinder, nicer Grim Grim Reaper, like more like a more like a doorman. But this is somebody who's died, right? Because I mean, we have. I don't know. I don't know if I really maybe. But why does it snow when he comes? You know, maybe and, death is cold. I don't know. And like his fingers are black, like he's frozen or something. You know, they always say the best experts are people that have gone through the thing themselves. So maybe he's because he's such a, you know, he's been through death a hard way. Maybe he's good at being the checker in her. I don't know. Who do you think he is? What do you nice. think he is? I mean, I don't know. I, I, get the grim reapery vibe from him because he shows up when somebody's well i mean i don't know but what does that mean about like ethel rita that's just where he is you think right 
Yeah, that's, you know, he's in the mortuary and he doesn't leave the mortuary. He stays at the top step. He doesn't come up into the house. Someone also made the comment that it's interesting how only black people can see him so far. Only black people that we've seen in the show so far. Only black people have seen him. Well, only Ethel Rita saw him, didn't she? I don't think Zelmer no. saw him. Well, she said, oh, that's old snowman or whatever. Well, she, she knew talked about, about it earlier. Yeah, I, I mean, no, that was uh, Sawani, wasn't it, who was talking about that? Because she was the one who was saying that... Um, no, Zelmar was, Zelmar was talking about the snowman. You're right. You're right. Because she was talking about it with, with her sister. But Sawani was saying that people think houses get haunted, but she thinks people get haunted. People, you know, death's pretty natural because it's going to happen to all of us, but people are still pretty afraid of it. So I think it's explainable that Ethel Rita, even though she knows it's inevitable, we all do, you know, who wants, you know, who's not afraid of death a little bit? So even if that dude lives in her basement, in her mortuary basement, she knows he's there, she can still be afraid of him. Right. Yep. Anyway, what else? So what else? So Birthplace of Civilization, we learn from this episode anyway, kind of is the title from Ethel Rita dueling with, um, what's his name? I forgot his name, but birthplace of civilization is Africa. Oh, Deffy, right? Deffy? Yeah, that's that's what she says. The birthplace of uh, civilization, I mean, how, how we know it. Is they call it the cradle of civilization is uh, Mesopotamia. It's in Iraq, right? It's uh, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. So I don't know. I think the point is though that Ethelred is just saying, no matter how you know, no matter what, if you trace it all the way back, we're all from the same starting point. Where you know you can make fun of Negroes and black people and everybody else, you know, everybody non-Mormon, but we're all the same. We all started out from the same. Well, remember Deffy had talked about um, the two tribes that got out or something that survived. I don't remember exactly how he put it. And so she kind of threw his own uh, logic back at him, I think. Who is your favorite character so far after four, after five episodes now? Well, I mean, Ethel Rita's got to be everybody's favorite character, right? Because she's smart and she's, you know... I just really like Ethel Rita. She's she's wise, and but she's not like so set in her ways. I don't know. She's smart and she knows she's smart, but she doesn't think she's smarter than she is. I don't I think she's wise. Like I think she's too young to be wise, but I do think she's very very smart. My favorite character is um, Rabbi for sure. After this episode and the way he his dialogue. Well, actually, my favorite character is Noah Hawley, because <laughs> the way he wrote this conversation and this dialogue is just brilliant. But I like Rabbi's, um, and you know, performance of Noah Hawley's authorship. I like Rabbi the best out of all the people. I think Rabbi's great. I'm. I think he's deep, and I think there's a whole lot more to him. And actually, that was one of the questions that I was going to ask you as we got into it a little bit. But we can go ahead and talk about it. Like, who's the hero? in this who is the hero when we think about loy and his family and loy the cannons loy is obviously the nicer one right like he's treating uh zero nice 
And um, much he's not a the- hero, though. If anybody's poised to be a hero, it's going to be a rabbi. We learned why a rabbi didn't want to return Satchel. He can't bring him back to the family because the family's going to get wiped out. He thinks the okay. family's going to be murdered, so he's right. pr- protecting him from that. Well, hero might not be a great word, but, you know, picaresque hero. Who Who's the one to root for in this? I mean, and somebody's going to win. They're not just going to demolish one another, I don't think. I mean, somebody's going to come out on top. Somebody has to be, well, not has to be, but is likely to be left standing. Who? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think they've definitely steered us toward Loy, the cannons being... Um, more deserving of it, particularly with this episode, because they show the Fadas just mistreating the canons just because they can, you know, just to like show them who's boss kind of thing and standing outside watching them. I mean, that's how this thing starts out. You know, we see Lemuel and, um, and Leon in that bar and they're just being mistreated, like severely mistreated by the police in this place. And as they take them out, the, the, the Fadas, Josto and the group are out there just standing there watching like coldly. Did you get but any then more? Again, we can't really like Lloyd a lot either because of what he says to the Smutneys at the end. You know, I traded my son to get ahead. You don't think I'll, I mean, you know, how, how can you appreciate that? So I don't know. Sorry. Well, I don't think Loy's a hero. And Smutneys are just dopes. Except for Ethel Rita. I don't think Debrell's a dope. Yeah, she's a she's a minor character, though. She's not going to be a hero in any of this. She's afraid of Loy. Please leave us alone. Please, You know, she's begging for forgiveness. Well, what else can she do? That doesn't I mean, mean she's a hero, though. She's not going to be a major character in this. Ethel Rita could become one, but... I don't know. I think the hero is going to be Rabbi. He's either going to be the hero or he's going to be the villain. And I cannot decide which one. Because uh, we may have a villain. That the hero, the hero in classic archetypes goes into a, goes through a trial by fire, goes into an enemy area, gets knowledge and brings it back to the, rest of the civil you know the rest of the story civilization or other characters in the story and imparts that knowledge and that's exactly what rabbi's done he's gone through a lot of tribulations he's rejected twice he's killed people he's done bad things he's learned from it and he knows what it is and now he's trying to protect satchel so he's pretty much teed up i think to be the hero right maybe We'll see. I don't. I don't necessarily trust him yet. That whole thing where Lloyd was talking with him about, I know what you did. Now that's kind of Lloyd's shtick now, though, right? He likes to get into people's heads by telling them what he knows about them, and that's what he did with, um, with Rabbi. And, but Rabbi said, you know nothing. And of course, when people do that and they're trying to like take your soft spot, take your, your, um, your shame and exploit it, then, you know, of course they're not going to necessarily give the details that really matter in it. But that's another thing that's unsavory about Loy, the way he does that. 
But I don't think we know everything about Ragnarok. They've teed up an epic battle to happen. So you've got like this, you know, Josto's got his troops coming from New York to kiss the ring and get troops from New York. Loy's got guys from Fargo coming in with 200 guns. It's a, it, you know, they've teed up this epic battle. We don't really have any hints as to what the result of that battle is going to be. Well, and Gatano's got, what What did uh, Rabbi say? 20 people coming from Italy is his guess. Yeah, but he's an idiot. 20 Ooh. people isn't, um, Twenty people from Italy aren't going to measure up from the mob from New York and the... 200. I don't know. Look at Gatano and, uh, and Calam- Calamita, if that's his name. Look at look at them. They're, they're enough to create some chaos. So it may be a three-way battle. Hmm. I think Aitano's got a short-lived future in this episode or in this he is, series. He's frustrating. He's hard to watch. That's all I got, Michelle, for Prelude. Okay. Well, that's that's enough. I think we've covered pretty much all of it. Like I said, we started with Lemuel and Leon and um, that, and then we go into um, Mort. And he's getting the guns from Loy, and Loy reminds him again that it's guns for loyalty, and they'll call them when they need them. And then Loy is talking about the Smutney funeral home, and if they tell them where the dikes are, they'll let them live. And if not, I mean, that's the words he used. And suddenly, as he's going into this with his people, they're broken into. They're, the doors are busted open as well by the police. And it's this huge raid. And this is where Weff goes to grab his money that's left on the floor and put it back in his car. Because he's taken... That was the vomit money, wasn't it? In know. that bag? I think it was. And so he's not even going to have that. So anyway, Lloyd starts to mock him about the story he's heard about him. And I think he knows enough to say enough. You know, it's like when people, the really good liars who lie to you, but they use enough truth that you, that that they know you'll know and makes it sound really good. But Lloyd's saying that he was a minesweeper and he couldn't take it anymore. So he lay down on the grass and a colonel comes up and asks if the field's been cleared. And he was told that it was. And then he walks in the grass to take a pee and he gets blown up. He has to be taken home in a soup terrain. And while he's saying this, you can tell it's just like really upsetting Weff. Weff does that little exhale, that little whenever he's upset. And Lloyd says that he didn't fight in the war because Weff's like, you know, well, did you fight in the war? And Lloyd says he didn't. He said, why would he fight for a country that wants him dead? And he keeps aggravating him. He keeps saying boom really loud as if it's like part of the story. And making Weff anxious and jumpy. It's really mean. It's I mean, and I know he's going through a lot, but we've seen him do it before. Some when, people don't like Chris Rock in this series. They don't think he's malicious enough or mean enough. But he's he's not really a big, tough, mean guy, but he's he's kind of a nagging, hectoring guy. And he, and he's he's like heckling and hectoring uh Weff in this, like bang, like Remember this explosion you hate? Bang. Remember the, you know, the post-traumatic stress you have? Bang. Like, he, he just he just digs at him with that. Chris Rock is good at that. He's not good at, like, overpowering you, but he's, he's good at cutting you with his tongue. Like, he's super sharp-witted. 
I think he's great for this. I don't think um, all the characters have to be Gatano-like to be scary. Well, who's saying that? Well, I mean, nobody. But I'm just saying, you know, you said that they don't like him. They don't think he's, like, tough enough. But I think there's different kinds of tough is what I'm saying. There's tough like Gatano, and then there's tough like, um, like you were saying, the, the quick-witted people. Those are sometimes the the ones you don't want to go up against. The other kind's just more of a brute force thing. But outside, we see Deffy watching what's going on. He watches Weff come outside with that money bag. So that was interesting. Okay, we we barely got another one of our favorite characters, which was Orietta Mayflower. What on earth was going on? She's sitting in that hospital room with a man who's obviously in a lot of pain, who's groaning and carrying on, and she shushes him. Yeah, so she. I think she can either... The problem with her being frustrated is she can... She's either... She's either idling, like she gave him she gave him poison and it wasn't working, so she's frustrated, or she may need the trigger. She may need she she may need the nod to go ahead and kill someone. Like, please take care, please take my father out of pain, please take care of my mother, please help my uncle, whatever. And there's may may have been no other person in this setting with this one dude that gave her that, you know, that implication implicated hint to kill him she may need that as a demon or whatever the heck she is she may not be able to just make that decision on her own she may need that little push or or that little okay from another human and she maybe not maybe did not have that with this guy yeah i think you may be right that she may need something she may need something to be able to do it and i don't think she's human I, i don't think she is human. Okay, then we go to Ethel Reader's room where she's writing a letter to Dr. Harvard. And you were right again. I hate this, Mike, twice in one week. But you were right again because she did know. She pieced that whole thing together. Um, because she was writing to him about what she found out about Orietta. And Michelle, if you just assume I'm right 100% of the time, it'll save you a lot of trouble. And me a lot of trouble. <laughs> Save you a lot of trouble, but um, yeah. So Thurman, her dad, comes in and she asks him about laudanum, and he tells her it's a painkiller. It's a very potent, could be dangerous if you take too much. And he tells her lights out. We find out it's her seventeenth birthday the next day, and he's telling her to go to bed. And as she gets into bed, she asks her dad about her aunt Zelmar. I think they're saying Zelmir, but I'm. Zelmar, like a yeah. like a horse mayor, like a female. I know, but I've called her Zelmar the whole time, so I'm probably gonna stick with that. Nobody but anyway, cares. <laughs> I mean, it won't be the first word I've butchered. But um, she talks him into telling her where she's staying, which he does, and then he gives her a warning, you know, not to go down there. Do you hear me? And she's like, No, I won't. So. Then he tells her not to hang around Orietta either because he thinks she might have poisoned that pie she baked him. Can you imagine, like, somebody bakes you a pie and leaves it for Thanksgiving and you think they poisoned it? Well, her dad is clearly made out to be a total dope. 
by Noah Hawley in this. Like, I think that pie was poison, honey. Okay, nighty night. Go see the Sandman or whatever he says. Oh, yeah, I know. Meanwhile, our neighbor is a poisonous nurse. <laughs> With all this, you know, medication she shouldn't have and poisoning people. And it's like, oh, just don't hang out with her. So he leaves the room and she gets back up to finish her letter. And as she reads the letter saying it was stuff like she worked with Miss Mayflower for many years. So she's lying. She's not saying, hey, I'm the girl across the road who was cleaning her house and happened to see it. But she said she worked with her for many years and saw many patients die of mysterious circumstances. And then we go back to Orietta in that hospital room as she's reading this with the man in pain. And now she's beating her head on the wall. And then we fade to the Fargo letters that takes the scene away. That's horrifying. That was scary. Yeah, Ethel Rita's setting things right. I mean, she's embellishing it. She's lying by writing this letter that she was working with Orietta. But she's trying to get her in trouble, trying to save whoever might be in her path next to get injected with poison. Yeah, I don't think she's necessarily embellishing. I picture embellishing like making it sound worse. I think she's just not giving away her identity as she does it. Embellishing, she's saying, I worked with her for years side by side, and I've seen this happen before. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess that's embellishing, but she is just trying to get her looked into. But, I mean, I don't know how that would even work, because surely they'd want to question the person that were saying that, but... Okay, then we go back to the Fada house, and Satchel's working on long division with Rabbi. Josto comes up and says he's bad at math, and Rabbi says no one says they're bad at English, which was kind of funny. That was funny. Um, Josto says they got rid of the cannons, so now Gatano will go back to Italy. Josto's simple-minded. They didn't start him off like that, I didn't. Maybe. I don't know. He's just... Josto is stupid and smart at the same time. He's smart enough to enlist the police on his side and go in and disrupt the, you know, to arrest the whole, you know, the whole cannon gang, essentially. That's pretty smart. He's got the police on his, in his payroll. But then he's so stupid about other things. He, he is stupid and smart at the same time. Well, Rabbi points out that Gatano will not go back to Italy. That, and, and there's not another city for him to go to because they've got people there already, you know, without him having to take over other people. And this is where he says Gatano will send for more people to help the family. But he says, but make no mistake, there will be there will be his men and they'll be here to take over. And then Josto asked him, what what should I do? And he said, and that was smart too. Rabbi says that him saying it like, me saying it is what he says won't make it any easier for you. See, I think Josh so smart just sitting and talking to Rabbi like this. Not just, oh, you're the stupid Irish kid that we got stuck with. He's literally, you know, strategizing with him, taking in his common sense. I guess it's smart, but he's just, he's not nice while he does it. And he just doesn't understand how lucky he is, maybe. Lucky, I don't know. You think Rabbi's just all good, and he seems good, but I don't. I the jury's out on my end with well, him. Well, he killed his sure. own father. You know, I don't think he's all good. I think he's. I think he's an agent of good. He's an agent to help the distressed. Satchel is. You know, he's an innocent. He's going to help Satchel. 
he may kill some innocent people to help Satchel. I don't think he's all good, but I think he's an agent somehow on the on the good side of things. He's going to help an innocent. He's going to help somebody who's underprivileged, underpowered, and protect them. Well, then when Josta leaves, Rabbi tells Satchel to be ready when the shooting starts because they're going to vanish. So that's how he's at least planning to get out. And that's of it. why he didn't just return Satchel. I'll sneak Satchel out. Satchel. I'll sneak Satchel out in the middle of the night. I'll bring him right back to you, Lloyd. He'll be home. He'll, he'll be happy. He knows better. He knows there's bad things about to happen to the cannons, Lloyd's crew, and Lloyd maybe even himself. So to bring Satchel into that mess would be not good for Satchel. Yeah. Even to the yeah. point where he takes a couple cuts from Lloyd to... He's just, he's just a great character. Whether you like him or you think he's good or bad, he's a great character. He is a great character. He is. So then Ethelreda finds Zelmar and Swanee at the New Paris Hotel, and they try to teach her the whistle to show she's friendly, which I'm sure will come back to us at some point. They're hungry. We find out that they can't even go out for food. They're hungry. They went through all the saltines. They're drinking whiskey, and they offer some to Ethelreda, but she says it clouds the mind, and that's that's wise. She's in there trying to have a conversation, and she won't take a drink on her birthday. Ethelreda asks Delmar what she would do if she saw something wrong and could fix it. So she's asking Delmar's advice about Orietta, and Zelmar just says, I wouldn't do anything. You know, she's like, she did not want to be involved in it. Well, she's got, maybe she's a little bit more selfish. She's got more bigger fish to fry. She doesn't need to correct the wrongs of other people to protect other, you know, people she may not even know. Yeah, or maybe but that's she important to Ethelreda. Yeah, you know, I don't know. But then they discuss the difference in criminals and outlaws. And Zelmar and Swanee say they, they ain't criminals. We're outlaws. We reject society's norms and mores, essentially. Yeah, like outlaws a higher class than a criminal. Right. I'm not a criminal. Well, then Ethelreda, they ask her, they say, are you a criminal, an outlaw, or a square? Is that what they say? Something. It was a third word. It meant, like, boring. I don't know. Hey, I don't remember. Can you, can you control your dogs? I'll there? try. <laughs> hey, shut up, or you're going to the pound. <laughs> My. <laughs> so, but Ethelreda, this is another wise thing she says. She says, I'm not any of those things. I am Ethelreda Pearl Smutney, and I'm one of a kind. That's she's good. She's this. getting the advice of her. Who, who said that you should never be second in line? That was her aunt. That was her aunt, right? Yeah, that was Zelmar. Tell her not to. Yeah, don't not be to second let in line. Don't go, don't stand behind anyone. That's good. That's good for her to know that about herself. Yeah, but she has this smug smile. Okay, so back at the Cannon household, this is where Lloyd walks in. And his wife is, man, she is mad. She is scolding him about Lemuel, and she's going to get him out of jail. And 
angel, the mother-in-law, is just like backing up everything with mm-hmm. everything that's being everything she's saying. Mm-hmm. Michelle, do you ever listen to a? There's a radio guy. You know, he's a podcast guy, but his name's Phil Hendry. He has a character named uh, somebody, and that's that's what she does. Well, somebody's talking. She says, "Mm-hmm." Mm-hmm. She like yeah, she like injects it, interjects it, you know, rudely while people are speaking. What's like, his name? Phil Henry. Phil Henry. Henry. Okay. Yeah, I see him. H e n d r i e. Phil Henry. Yeah, I see it. And okay. one of his characters does that. Yeah, that's that's. And that's exactly what she was doing. Yeah, that like, mother. I'm not listening to a thing you're saying. I'm I'm. Perfunctually saying, mm hmm, mm hmm. Oh, she, but she was definitely agreeing with her daughter. You could tell. Mm hmm. So, but she's fighting mad. She keeps on with him until he actually, like, puts his foot down. And he goes into that everything he's provided for her and that it all comes from the razor's edge. And he's not the villain. And they're on this ride now, and they can't get off until the roller, colors, ro- roller coaster stops. So take off that coat and get me some coffee, woman. Well, he's on the razor's edge. He's got to be the pop. He's got to be the husband. He's also got to be the criminal, you know, gang, gang lord, gang lord leader of the gang to keep everything, to keep money coming in. Where do you think that nice warm room comes from? You know, whatever. I can't think of the other things he said to... Well, yeah, he's talking about the blankets and the coats and the food and yeah. the view and all that stuff. And he's right. Yeah. But they're all on the razor's edge. It's not just him. If he brings that into the house, it's the whole family that's on the razor's edge. I don't edge. think so, Michelle. I think he, I think him being out in the in the field, being the one who has to cut rabbi and push people and do the mean things and maybe protect potentially take a bullet i don't think zelmar what's her name the wife not zelmar zelmar's sister um debrell 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 doesn't isn't very likely to take a bullet or have to cut someone or kill someone or trade away a son he's doing that shit he's on the razor's edge that's not lloyd's wife I don't know her name. I don't know Lloyd's wife's name. But, but yeah, but no, Mike, but she's given up her sons. I mean, she's given up her sons. She even brings that up. I'm talking about know? the scene where Lloyd is at home with his wife and his mother-in-law. I know. That's what I'm talking about, too. But he's talking about being on the razor's edge. And I'm saying that she is, too. No, she's not. That's Okay. First of all, I'm sorry I said Zelmar, and then I'm sorry I said Zubril or Dubril or whatever Dubril, her name is. Yeah. I meant Loy's wife. I don't, I don't know. Loy's wife and Loy's mother-in-law are not on the razor's edge, Michelle, like Loy is. They don't have to do the hard-ass shit that he does to be a gang leader. They don't cut people, push people around, and risk their lives. Okay. Well, they are not are likely to get shot. They're not likely to get shot. They're not likely to be killed in a day of work like Loy is. Well, Mike, you've never been a mother, and I'm telling you that giving up your child to these people, to me, seems like it would be a harder thing than being likely yeah, to be shot. Yeah, but Lloyd's talking about the day-to-day, I live on the razor's edge. 
Giving up the child was one thing that happened one time. I think Loy said we are on the razor's edge. But okay, I'm not going to argue that with you because you're always right when you argue that stuff. I sometimes hear what I want to hear. But then he turns to the mother-in-law and he says, can I get a mm-hmm? You know, and then he gets a hmm instead. So that was kind of funny. Yeah, it's like but, shut your ass up little comic relief that was much needed so then we have that whole cannon crew and they're in jail talking mm -hmm. and leon's trying mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then leon's trying to defend himself against having lemuel neck deep in liquor and syphilis and then realizes he's in trouble that he really doesn't have well a, he's a dope for taking samuel zemuel lemuel. lemuel to this club he's underage he's in a you know, they're in a, essentially a gang war. And he takes them out into this, like, open open territory where anything could happen to them. And, you know, any, what do they say? Nothing good happens after 10 p.m. or whatever. Takes them into a nightclub at night. Right. Which is redundant, right? Nightclub he, at night. But he takes them out when he should be bodyguarding him and tucking them into bed, not taking well, them out to yeah, the jazz the club. Point, the point of having him was to keep him on the straight and narrow and keep him in school and all that. But he's got him in the club. But, but, to Leon's defense, he knows how important music and stuff is to Lemuel. And, you know, Lemuel wants to be a, you know, a musician. Yeah, but he's a soldier of Loy. Leon is Loy's employee slash soldier. He's been given a task and he's failed miserably. I'm not miserably. with you. I'm not arguing with you because I agree, but I mean, I kind of see where he's coming from, but anyway, they're all in this police cell. So the police come in and then they leave and invite the fathers in to have their say. And the police are like smiling and chuckling at their reactions. Cause this, this whole, I mean, they're in a, they're literally sitting ducks in there. They don't know. I mean, they could come in there with guns and that'd be the end of them. Josto comes in and tells them that America is a crime story, but we don't root for the victim. We root for the taker. This country loves a man who takes what he wants unless the man looks like you. That's a horrible thing to say to somebody. It's and then, true, though. At, yeah, well. This is, a, this is a crime drama slash comedy by FX, Fargo, all this, but it, it really is a history of America. You know, and you, you said you don't like The Godfather, but the God, the most fascinating thing about The Godfather isn't people getting gunned down at a wedding. It's the histor historical, quasi, you know, reality, historic history lesson that it teaches us. All these immigrants come. They don't have anything. They make something of themselves. Some don't have opportunities, so they turn to crime. For me, The Godfather was a history lesson of America. And yeah, with with yeah. a fascinating entertainment, with a fascinating entertaining, you know, curtain draped over it or mask put on it. But it's it, it's a history, and yeah, this is what this is too. Fiction, right? Yeah, and and I, I actually love historical fiction, and I probably have said I hate The Godfather, but only because I've just been like forced to watch it so many times. Like I've seen it so many times, and it's just so brutal. And that's the part that I and haven't been forced, but you know what I mean? It's been on around me a lot. And, um, this is Michelle. Did you ever, I think you, I think you watched Casey Neistat, right? The YouTube guy. I've seen some of it. Uh -huh. You know what movie he plays 
24-7 on a loop in his studio? The Godfather. The Godfather. Godfather and Godfather Part 2. Constantly, always on a monitor playing because he's inspired by it. Okay. But what I mean by, you know, this is horrible, it's obviously horrible, but it's horrible to say that to somebody too, you know? I mean, it's horrible that it is, but it's horrible to say that. It's like, it's just like I said about Josto, you know, like he finds painful stuff in people. Well, Lloyd does too, I guess. But Why Josto is it horrible? Want me to come in there and, and say that to him? Why to them? is it horrible? Because it's mean is why. He's, he's like, we can get away with this stuff. You know, people root for us, but they're not going to root for you. He's right, though. He's stating the truth. Well, that doesn't mean it's not ugly. It's effective, though. I think he's trying to be effective and not diplomatic. Well, he's certainly not doing it for their benefit. He's doing it for his own benefit. He's not trying to be kind by orienting them to no, something. No, he's trying to be he's... effective. Then he tells Lloyd it's... Um, no, he says to tell Lloyd that it's time to surrender. And he walks out, and Rabbi stays back, and he asks what Lloyd is going to do. And he says he's asking because of the boy. And they say, well, there's no going back, essentially. And then he says, well, tell Lloyd that I'll keep the boy safe no matter what. And they say, just bring the boy home where we can watch him. And he says, no, you're all going to die. I mean, doesn't even turn back and look at him. So that does not bode well to what's going to happen, I don't think. Okay, this time we go to Weff's apartment where he's sitting and looking anxious and Deffy knocks on the door. And Deffy asks him, rough not? And remember, Deffy was watching. And then Weff was pitiful. He said, they're all rough. And then we see Hummels underneath a picture of his intended, who died when he was overseas. And we find out that some guy named Nelson Beats broke in while she was sleeping, raped her, and strangled her with her own panties. And... He got the letter when he was in France. So we kind of hear his side of the story about what happened. He was they made France. a much deeper, colorful, more more profound definition of WEF in this episode. Yes. Much more, much more understandable than this goofy OCD knocking on every door multiple times guy. Right. Right. Well, we find out that he was in France and he was clearing landmines and they liked him because he was so precise. He knew what he was doing. And he got the letter that his uh, fiance, I guess, his intended had died. She'd been killed. And he says he got the letter one morning when he and, and he went out to clear a field and he just lay down in the grass for three to four hours. And he said the clouds look different over there. He said they look French. And then Deffy asks what her name was, and Weff ignores him and says, you know, what What are you doing here? What do you need? And Deffy says that he's going to go shake some trees. It's and interesting that Deffy got deft back at him. Like, Weff didn't want to answer that, so he just ignored it. Kind of like what Deffy does. Yeah, true. But Weff says he's got too much paperwork to do. He just doesn't want to. He, he has no interest. So Deffy leaves, and he leaves him sitting there with this ashtray full of butts and sadness. 
you know, was just terrible. He's just sitting in one of those uncomfortable little hard kitchen chairs with a completely overflowing ashtray. By the way, Wes's house, that scene was beautiful. That dark wallpaper with those white ceramic or porcelain coffee cups. I thought that was beautiful. I, I, I kept hoping they would flash back to, you know, show, show that angle. Because it just looked so cool. It, I guess it was his kitchen or his nook or whatever. But I really liked the look of that. Dark, dark wallpaper, dark blue or black wallpaper with those white porcelain coffee cups. Yeah, I, I remember it now that you said it, but I don't know that I even paid any attention to it. The whole place seemed sad. It was like he had a room somewhere or something. But, I mean, I guess there is, like, you know, beauty and sadness sometimes. It wasn't because it was sad. It just looked the, the combination of those two colors. I just, I'm just saying, I guess that you can find beauty even in places that are sad. So that's interesting. Okay, then we see Gitano. He's dancing to the opera music that isn't there. And he dances across the parking lot with Calamita when he does a crazy hard leg up in the air fall. And a kid, the kid that works in the coffee shop or whatever it is, starts laughing at him. And Calamita goes toward him, but Gitano stops him, which I didn't understand. And then inside, Gitano and Calamita are drinking coffee and talking about it's time to make a real move. And Gitano doesn't like the coffee. Is that because it had the milk and sugar in it? Or were they just because the guy that served it, like, slammed it down on the table? And what was that all about? I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he didn't like the coffee. But they were, they were in a place that they don't normally go, right? They were intervening between the eBay violence and and um, Dr. Senator meeting. That that's normally those guys' place. No, this place wasn't. This wasn't that place. They weren't there yet. This they wasn't cafe, that, whatever. No, it wasn't Spuds or whatever it was. Okay. No, no, this was just some other little corner place. But he takes the broom away from the boy because uh, he's talking about the coffee and the kid says i think it's coffee with cream and sugar in it and he's like cream and sugar like that was crazy he takes the broom from the boy and says in italy if we pay someone to sweep they sweep and he's like you know really sweeping where the kid's kind of like moving the broom around a little bit and he says if we pay someone to make a cup of coffee they make it like michelangelo and then he brings up the falling falling on the ice and says it was the boy's job to clear it and he didn't do that job well either, but he thinks it's funny. And he thinks it's funny because he thinks people are going to turn the other cheek when he laughs. But he's Italian, as if to say, I'm Italian, so I'm not going to do that. And then he shoots both the boy and the owner of this place. He has a very, very Joe Pesci moment. It was really bad. And Calameda's going, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Okay, so back at the Smutney house, Thurman is hanging up the happy birthday banner while Debrell is frosting the cake when the doorbell rings. And it's really... That is so loud. It's Bailey, really... 
Yeah. Bailey, taking you to the dog pound. <laughs> Don't say that to them. That's mean. It's Loy and Zero, and Loy tells him that tells Thurman that he needs to invite a man. They're all sitting at the table, looking at the birthday decorations, and Thurman tells them it's Etherita's birthday. Loy tells them the story of how they robbed him and then paid him back with his own money. And then this is where he goes into that he traded his own son to his enemy for power. And it was funny, too, because he's like, uh, Debrell offers to get his son some cookies. And he's like, does this look like my son? Does this look like my son? And why not? Because we see that Ethelreda is Thurman's daughter. So I thought that was a really, you know, I mean, why not? Why might it not be his son? Yeah, but she is Thurman's daughter, and he is not his son. I know, but I mean, uh, but Louis is acting like they should know that, you know? And I don't know. And Ethelreda is Thurman's daughter. Anyway, um, but he says that he traded his own son to his enemy for power, and his mama cries herself to sleep every night, but he sleeps like a baby because he's going to do whatever it takes to win. Mm -hmm. That's not very likable. Then he tells Debrell to give Zero cake, and this cake has not been cut yet, and she's offered him cookies, and this is her daughter's birthday cake. It's not like she's going to run down to the baker and get another cake. You know, Ethel Reed is going to get a cut cake for her birthday. And then he tells them that their business is now his, and they're going to have to sign over the deed this afternoon, and this is where Debrell breaks down and begs him. She tries to beg him, but he says that they can say nothing but whatever you want, boss. And then he says he also wants her sister, and he's going to do whatever he wants to them, too. Because she's like, well, what are you going to do? And, and then Thurman goes... Wait until your daughter, and I'll wait until your daughter comes home and do that to her, too. Right. Well, yeah. He's yeah. a gangster. He's not effing around. So Thurman does all these little half sentences, you know? Um, he should have asked where they got the money. And then he starts making half the, the half sentence, like, I, I didn't know the rules in this. And, and he's doing all that. And then Lloyd tells him that the rules are, he tells them what he wants, and, or, and they either tell him or he'll paint the room with them. You're right. And then wait for their daughter to come home. And so he's asked about, Zelmar, and after a while, Debrell nods, like, tell him. So, they, oh, yeah, he okay. reduced it down to the simplest decision. Do you want me to paint the room with your blood and then wait for your daughter to come home and do the same to her, or do you want to tell me what I need to know? Yeah, there's a whole lot of not really any choices in what people are able to do. There's that one. This next one is Ethel Reed, Ethel Reed in the principal's office. She gets called in. And the secretary's mean to her. She says, I knew you were trouble the moment I laid eyes on you. And then Deffy's in the principal's office. He wants to be in there with her alone. Asked to speak to her privately. And the principal's mean to her before he leaves. He said, in all my years of educating colored children, I've never had a U.S. marshal come in and want to talk to one of my students. Just ugly. Everybody's ugly in this one. Well, so Duffy the, does to Ethel Rita what Lloyd just did to her parents. He that's reduces what I said, it yeah. to the most common 
terms and you're going to be knocked out of school if you don't tell me what I want to know. And that's, well, that's it. He doesn't give her a choice. I mean, it would literally destroy her future. And he also, tell, well, first he offers her um, carrot sticks. And then he also tells her what Zelmar did, because I don't think she knew. She went on a cough syrup bender and pistol whip or pistol grip bludgeoned a pregnant woman and a prayerful execution of her husband for nine dollars and change. Who hasn't done that? Woo, those are rough weekends. So Swanee, we find out, was part of a bank robbery that killed a bank manager and a coach of a peewee football team. And yeah, they're like, not just two lovable goofs on a lark having fun on the weekend. You know, woo, we got out of jail. Let's go, like, have some more adventures. They're, like, well, pretty bad, evil. They're, lo- you know, Loy's like that, too. He'll cut somebody's finger off or kill somebody, and they, that's what they did. Right, right. And he asked them, he's like, why are you protecting them? Did you think they just were in prison for littering? And he knows they're on the other side of town. And then he tells her that she has to act in a civilized manner. And this is for Ethel Rita, where we get the title of this episode, says Africa is the birthplace of civilization, that both of their ancestors are from the same green savanna. And he says, oh, yeah, well, tell me where your aunt is or I'll get you expelled. The Lord said to shake the tree and I'm shaking it. It's your life or Zelmar's life. One of them's getting ruined. It's up to you which one it is. So that's not really a choice. So then Leon is trying to speak for himself to Lloyd when they drive up, but Lloyd just wants Lemuel home with his mama. And then he tells the crew they need to leave in five and arm up. So then Deffy's in his car. He's calling for backup. We see these quick little scenes saying he's headed for the New Paris Hotel. And then at the hotel, Zelmar is rubbing Swanee's feet. They're lying around, and she's saying she could get used to this. And they start to kiss, and Lloyd bursts into the room, and he tells them to get dressed. Um, Swanee says to rape them or kill them already, and Lloyd says they owe him. So he has no intention, at least at this point, of hurting them or killing. He says killing them is too easy. He needs invisible soldiers, not hookers. And they say they don't like bosses. And he says, well, do you like bullets? And then we like go downstairs and Deffy's about to raid and not knowing what's going on upstairs. And then Deffy makes his way upstairs, burst in the room just in time to see them being for- forced into Lloyd's car through the window. And then he, yeah, you know. For- says, forced in, but, you know, they're going with Lloyd. They're going, but they're like being pushed in. And well, it's like hurry up, hurry up, we got to get out of here. I don't like scenes like this, Michelle, where it's like easily resolvable by the police. Like, Deffy can't call somebody, like blow a whistle or shout out the window, "Hey, stop those guys!" And they just get away because they're 112 yards away from him and they're faster than him. It, it's a, it's an implausible escape. But yeah, I guess, but- I guess we had to see. We had to see that Loy saw what was, or not Loy, Deffy saw what was going on, and that showed it to us. And then Deffy does his version of a curse word, his son of a biscuit. I like, I, I like that character too. I don't know if I like him, but I like the character. 
And then we go to that terrible scene. This is awful. This is miserable. Where Dr. Senator's going to meet Ebal, but it's Calamita there instead. Gatano's in the background, and he's all disgusting. Eating the ice cream sundae just continues. It's like he eats some of it and then piles more crap on top of it and keeps eating it. And Calamita asks the doctor if he's ever seen a baby in a box. And doctor's like, you know, where's um, a ball? And Calamity says, the powwows with the con- uh, consigliere are over. You guys aren't listening, so we're not talking anymore. And then he says something else. He's like, you understand English or insinuate that you understand English not or something. And the doctor sasses him a little. Says, well, you're still talking. You said you weren't going to talk anymore. Kind of mocks him a little bit. And then Calamita goes into the story about how he was a baby in a box. His mother died of TB bringing him to America. And the doctor or doctor says, everybody has a sad story. And Calamita says, don't feel bad for me. Just understand there isn't a monster on earth tougher than an orphan in a box. Yeah. And, and in, again, in Godfather, that's how, you know, Don Vito Corleone came to America is, you know, he was, his mother was killed. He was shipped over on a boat and he had to come by himself and he survived. And, you know, it's, it makes somebody pretty tough. And when you don't have options, you turn to whatever you can do. And I mean, this is very, very much parallel to the Godfather. This That's interesting. These stories yeah. that they're telling, especially coming from Italy too, or Sicily or Sardinia or whatever. I guess it's Sicily. But that's the same as the Corleone family, you know. They came, he had to come and survive. They shipped him over here to just get away from the trouble he was leaving behind, like Gaetano had to do. Well, yeah, and again, we see Gaetano in the background wolfing down that ice cream, cramming it down his throat and continuing to just like, I mean, why are they showing him like that? Well, they show the counterpoint to it in that Dr. Senator's measuring his sugar teaspoon by teaspoon maybe it was just one Mm -hmm. but he's not just dumping sugar in his coffee he's measuring it literally measuring a teaspoon out and Gaetano's just sloppily pouring his chocolate syrup over the edge of the ice cream cup well maybe the maybe doctor is uh, more measured and Gaetano's just over the top do you think Michelle maybe maybe the thing that I think the point here is they're removing the buffer of the consulares, the two guys that usually talk things out and reasonably sensibly measure things and figure out a couple layers deep. They take them out and now there's just raw, rough edge against rough edge. And we, that's the clash we we're going to see. Do we think Josto knows this is going on? I don't know. Because I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think he would send them. But I guess we'll find out. Well, now there's no Dr. Senator to go back to Loy and say, okay, Loy, let's think this through. They didn't really know that this was the situation. So that explains this. And Loy's just going to be, you know, hugely angry and going to respond accordingly. He doesn't have his buffer anymore. Not at all. Not at all. But, um... Back to this scene. Doctor tells him that he has it all wrong. He who wishes to lead must be able to command. And then he says, he don't know how they did it in his country, but in America, respect is earned. 
And then he tells them that uh, Ibal had earned his respect. And then he's, I mean, he's mad, you know, he's just like furious, Doctor is. He says, but you, and he laughs at Calamita and says, they're just boys, you're just boys making a mess that one day I'm going to have to clean up. And then he gets yeah, he rem- up. That, this scene reminded me of Dennis Hopper in True Romance, where he's just making the guy madder and madder. Because he knows he's doomed. I think I think Doctor Senator knows he's doomed here. He can see, he can read between the lines that they're going to remove him as this smart conciliaria that can be a buffer for Loy, and well, it's going to send a signal. And he knows he's dead, so he's like getting his last couple digs in. Well, and and I actually made a note here that as he gets up to leave, he holds Nadine, the waitress. He holds her hand a little longer than necessary and thanks her for the coffee. And then he leaves. He, like, looks her in the eye. And he's walking away outside. You hear the bell jingle, and Calamita shoots both Doctor and the driver dead in the street. And then we kind of fade to nighttime, and then we see Loy in the group standing over them, looking all sad. I mean, Loy's tore up. And then they hear the sirens, so they have to go. So they weren't far away because they're getting there before the sirens. And then the camera slowly zooms in on Doctor's face, and his eyes are wide open. Yeah, but he laid in the street for, it seemed, probably hours, an hour or more. Before the police got there? Yeah. The police are in the Italian's pocket, Michelle. They paid the police not to come until they said it was okay to come. The police arrested all the cannon gang on the Defada's, um... Right, but they're all out now. I don't know. I can't imagine. Yeah, the police are in their pocket. They come when they say it's time to come. That's why he laid in the street for a long time. He didn't lay there for five seconds. Okay. But that was it. Then we go dark. It's the end. Yep, that's the end. All right, Michelle. Sorry, I'm tired this week. So next week is 406 Camp Elegance or Elegance. Any ideas what that's going to be about? I don't. I did not even watch the upcoming. They've been like absolutely nothing. Like you'll see somebody pull a gun. I think last week you saw uh, Gatano do that fall. And that was, I mean, that was like it. It's nothing. Nothing you can even look at. So I didn't even look at it for this week. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Fargo on the West Coast Project Network. Yep. Michelle from TN, Mike at Scathing Tweets. Yep. Or Michelle from T. Michelle is at Michelle from TN. Mike is at Scathing Tweets. I guess I (laughs) should say it correctly if I'm going to say it. Yeah. And uh, Michelle, I'm going to go to sleep and get some rest. Me too. Can you keep your howling hounds from uh, waking me up? I'll do my best. No promises. Okay. See you next week. See ya. Bye-bye.